You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. One of the best defences against temptation is hope. Hope. One of the best defences against temptation is hope. And that was uh, driven home to me this week when I came across this verse in Revelation. It's Revelation chapter 21 and verse 10. Uh, John, who writes Revelation, is having a vision of many, many things. And we're really right at the end of Revelation. And he says this, The angel carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And as I read those words, it struck me what a parallel there was between those verses that what happened to John and the temptation of Christ, the second temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Uh, John is taken not by the devil, but by an angel to see a great city, the new Jerusalem, which according to John isn't just a city, but represents a whole of creation full of God's glory, redeemed and sanctified and made holy. It's the whole of human society under the kingship of, of God in the future, coming down out of heaven. And there's a kind of opposite parallelism to what happened uh, to Jesus when the devil leads him up to a high place and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. That word world in the Greek is where we get our word economy from. He's showing him all of human civilization. And so you see the devil is showing him a satanic substitute, the kind of uh, diabolical twin of the new Jerusalem. And he's tempting him in that way. And What I want to say really is that it struck me that one of the, one of the ways that the Lord was able to fight temptation was because when he saw the, the, the substitute, the fake that the devil offered him, he had in his mind most clearly the true prize for which he came to the earth to win. What enabled Jesus to fight temptation was this vision of the future that he had as the Son of God, perfectly as an unfallen man. He knew exactly what it was that he had come to win and to rule over. He knew what his kingdom would look like. He knew what the end would look like. He wanted the bride. He wanted uh, human uh, human beings in their millions, billions, believing in him, rescued from sin, sanctified, pouring out his love and his beauty and his glory into every aspect of, of human existence, every aspect of society. Uh, That's what the New Jerusalem represents, us sanctified and filled with uh, spiritual life and cast forth into eternity and living 100% for God and in his presence. It's the church in eternity. And because he had such a strong vision of the future, of, of what the prize really was, he knew that no matter how glorious, how expansive, how many riches there were, how how good or complicated or weighty this offer that the devil offered him was, it was nothing compared to to what he had really come for. You see that? That vision of the future is hope. That vision of the future is hope. And one of the best defences we have against temptation is hope. Hope is having God's vision of the future. That's what it means. Really, really simply. And And let me say it again. Hope is having God's vision of the future. And if we have that vision in our heart, we will want that future thing more than anything else. We will want what God wants. And we will 
believe in the depths of our heart that it is possible to get to that point. Because it's God's vision. Amen? And what I want to say to you today is that hope is an incredible defense against the attack of the enemy. More than that, hope is something that should characterize every part of the Christian life. It's just fundamental to what it means to be Christian. To have that vision of the future in every part of our lives, uh, the world around us, in our own lives, in our relationships and our possessions, in every aspect of what it means to be human. God wants our lives to be characterized with this, this vision of the future. That we want more than anything else and we actually believe, even though it seems impossible to us, that it is actually possible because it's God's vision. He wants our lives to be full of hope. So, it's important for us to recognise, I want to talk a little bit about temptation this morning, that because hope is so important, the devil will attack it and he will attack it in certain ways. So we need to be aware of that. That's what I want to talk about first. So what is the devil doing when he tempts the Lord? The devil is trying to get him, uh, to get Jesus to give up on something that, humanly speaking, is impossible. That's what he's trying to do. That picture of the new Jerusalem, of all of us here who believe in Jesus Christ, and all the millions and billions of people who throughout the ages and in the years to come will believe on Jesus Christ, and all the effects of their lives sanctified and made perfect and made visible in heaven. At this point in history, 2,000 years ago, the devil is pressing on Jesus' humanity and saying, that seems a little unlikely, don't you think? Do you get that? Historically speaking, you know, you place Jesus in the middle of the wilderness, 40 days of fasting, 12 kind of dodgy disciples, not many followers, you know, Roman occupation, the Roman Empire controlling the known world, you know, a world completely distant from God. Humanly speaking, it seems impossible that one day that world will look anything like this new Jerusalem that John saw and that Jesus had in his heart. And the devil brings this temptation, I think. And one way to understand it is he's saying, that is so impossible, that can't really be the thing that God wants you to aim for, can it? And if that thing means, for example, turning down the opportunity to to rule over those things and instead of that to actually lay down your life upon a cross, to turn down a a golden throne and take up the throne of, of wood and the crown of thorns, is that really the way God wants you to go? He's pressing on him, this, the impossibility of the salvation of the world. And you look at that, you look at your own heart. Look at the, the hearts of people you know who are resistant to the gospel. How hard it was for God to break through into your life, humanly speaking. Could you have grasped the truth of the gospel by yourself? No. Could you have pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps to improve your life? No. Could you have an effect on the world that lasts more than you know, just your lifetime? No. And Jesus' vision is, is precisely of all those things. He, that we will indeed be saved. We will indeed come to salvation, be transformed. We live lives that give glory to God for eternity. You could sum up the, the kind of the basic approach of the devil is to whisper in Jesus' ear, a bird in the hand is a bit of an outdated uh, phrase, isn't it? But here it is. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That's it. 
And actually, although that's comical almost to use that phrase, it's really, really important for us to understand that that's basically the devil's approach to most of us. You really think that God wants that for you? That seems a little far-fetched, don't you think? Here's something, it's good, it's not anywhere near as good as what God wants, but at least it's possible. That's the devil's approach. Anyone ever felt that? All the time, in my experience. In my life, I'm not speaking for you guys. (laughs) That's the nature of... Uh, the devil's temptation to us. Just like with Jesus, you know, he tempted Jesus to turn bread into a stone. We're not able to do that. He's not going to come and tempt us to do that. Likewise, he's not going to come to you and say, you know, Andrew, I'm going to offer you all the kingdoms of the earth if you'll follow me. But he will come to you and say, a bird in the hands worth two in the bush. I can give you something that, you know, is realistic and achievable. And you can get it tomorrow instead of having to wait a year or decade or a lifetime to get. That's the nature of his temptation. He offers us a second best that we don't need God for. What God has promised, he says to us, he won't or he can't deliver. But here's something that's good anyway. You know, and, and that temptation is real. And it's powerful. And it comes into every aspect of our lives. I remember counselling a Christian man some years ago. Uh, he was planning on he was planning on leaving his wife because this twin attack had come into his life. First of all, he couldn't stop thinking about an elderly couple that he knew who were bickering all the time, and this lie came into his into his mind: I don't want to end up like them. That's the first thing. And the second thing that came into his life was a lady who'd come in, he knew he was married, but had made her romantic interests very obvious anyway. And he saw a way out. What happened, actually, and the tragedy was that, you know, he, he went through with his plan. How did the devil win that battle? Because he got him to let go of the hope of marriage in God's eyes. What is possible when God does something powerful. When God brings two people together, uh, he, he got him to let go of that vision of the future that actually this could work out. And he offered him something much easier, much and by far, far second best. He didn't have God's vision of the future. And we find that same temptation in our lives, in big ways like that and in small ways. So, yes, in things like marriage, like the example I gave above, but the temptation will come to you guys who are married. There'll be times when it's difficult and it's tough, and the devil will really will come to you and he'll say, do you really believe that God can take you two and make you one <laughs> so that you're full of his love and life and you're, you're pouring out this beauty into the world? Do you really think that God can do that? Let's look at this reasonably for a second. At a human perspective, it seems very unlikely, doesn't it? Maybe there are other easier options. And to be honest, the attack doesn't usually come like from you know an extramarital affair or something like that. It usually comes in, why are you making so much effort? It's not really going to work anyway. Why are you putting so much time? Why are you being so vulnerable with the other person when it's not going to work out? He comes in that way, doesn't he? He comes to attack us that way sometimes. He attacks us in relationships, in, 
in church. Sometimes something happens, someone says something, something someone expresses an opinion or uh, sins against us or seems to sin against us, and the devil comes and says, you know, this church business, I know the Bible says, like, you know, fellowship in the spirit, blah, blah, blah. peace and unity and all that stuff. But, you know, realistically, psychologically speaking, this is impossible, isn't it? All these people, different backgrounds, different, you know, incomes, different interests, Different, whatever, you know, it's just, it's not really going to work. Stick to your own little group. Stick to your own friendships. Don't be so hopeful. Play it safe. It'll be good. You'll enjoy it. Uh, Yeah, it won't be that, you know, utopian nonsense that you read about in Acts 2. But you'll be okay. And evangelism, he comes, doesn't he? You meet someone and you present the gospel to them and they're just like, well, no, thank you. The devil comes and says, well, you didn't really expect them to respond to the gospel, did you? What were you thinking? You know, better, you know maybe keep it to yourself. Can I, you know, that, realistically speaking, that person's not going to be saved, are they? Maybe try someone a bit easier. Someone who's already pretty much a Christian. Tell them the gospel. You know, let them drift into the kingdom. Stop aiming so high. He whispers it to us in terms of, uh, you know, just small things. You really want to get up and pray? You know, when was the last time you had a really rewarding prayer time? Extra hour in bed? That feels pretty good, doesn't it? Or in the evenings, you you know, really, you want to spend time worshipping the Lord? You want to spend time going to visit that person who doesn't, you know, is it really going to pay back? Is it really going to be worth it? Is anything going to come of that when you could just, you know, spend some time on yourself, entertain yourself? You see big, big and small ways? Do any of these hit home? Do you recognize any of them? He tempts, he tempts us all throughout our lives. I think the temptation is especially strong as we get, uh, when you go through a midlife crisis, which is apparently a, a real thing. I know nothing about that, of course. <laughs> uh, I think towards the end of your life, and, uh, end of your life, sorry, I shouldn't say that. As you get older, when you get to retirement age, there's a real temptation towards uh, to believe that you know you only li- you only live once. The YOLO thing that people don't talk about, but they did about three years ago. <laughs> you only live once. You know you've got to pack your life with experiences because you're never going to get to do those things again. He attacks in terms of uh, your own progress in the Christian life. Says you know, do you really think God is able to transform you? <laughs> You know, you, you, all your weaknesses and peccadilloes and, you know, all those things. You really think that God can make a good job out of you. And that is, that's a bit silly. You know, you need to lower your expectations in the Christian life. Sometimes he attacks us in the midst of, when, you know, I talked last week about that there are times when we experience uh, a sense of abandonment, distance from God. And he attacks us there and he says, and it, it, with, with the, the lie that God has really abandoned us. And there really is no point of carrying on. And maybe it is right just to give up. It's spiritually. He attacks us by tempting us not to attempt great things for God. Just lower your expectations. Don't do anything really big with your life because you're just going to get disappointed. And above all, I think he attacks us in our uh, salvation. Isn't it ridiculous to think that you one day will not only be in heaven, but be like Jesus Christ? That is, that is crazy. Stop thinking so big and aim lower. In all these ways, he attacks us. Maybe this morning, and I wouldn't be surprised if it applies to many of us, some of those things that I've said to you are actual live things happening to you in your life right now. Aren't they? Some of those things 
have been live things for me. Maybe it's something I haven't said is something that the enemy is whispering to you. That it's quite clearly a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. God has said something like this over your life, something wonderful and impossible. And the devil is saying, now, 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 let's be realistic. I can give you something better and you can have it tomorrow. God wants to give you impossible things. Did you know that? God wants to give you impossible things. God wants to give you treasures from that gold paved city, New Jerusalem. He wants to give you things in your life that people will look at and say, there is no earthly, there's no way this thing has a right to live on this earth, to exist in this world. This has to be so otherworldly in terms of the transformation of your character, in terms of the, the, the people that God will reach through you, in terms of the way you transform the world around you, in terms of the way you, you yourselves are, are transformed. God wants to give you things from heaven that are humanly speaking, worldly speaking, impossible. And to attain those things we need Hope. We need hope. The devil wants to say that's just pie in the sky. Not even when you die. God says it's real. Hope is not pie in the sky. It's the truth. Those impossible things actually are the only things that make sense of this world. Those impossible things are the only things that can actually fix the problems in this world, in your life and in the people around you and in the kingdoms of the world that the devil showed Jesus. Those things only make sense because there's this wonderful future to come that breaks in now. It wouldn't be a, a good week at Tennessee if we didn't quote C.S. Lewis just once. So. <laughs> but C.S. Lewis says this. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Shall I say that again? If you need, if you sorry, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the, the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Hope is so, so important. So how do we get it? How do we get hope? It's a gift from God, isn't it? He's poured out his spirit into our heart. He's poured hope into us. And that hope shall not disappoint us. We get that hope through union with Christ. So, first things first, you need to be a Christian. When you come to Jesus Christ, you put your faith in him and you're born again, you get baptized according to his command. It's hope. This otherworldly thing, and it is otherworldly, flows into you. Hope is not trying really hard. It's not taking every opportunity. It's not being brave or courageous all the time. Being optimistic. That stuff can make a difference in your life. But hope is this impossible, otherworldly thing that flows into you from outside. That's what Jesus had. Because he was unfallen, you see. He was in perfect communion with his Father. What he saw is what we cannot see, naturally speaking, because we're fallen. He saw that shining city. 
And so all the things of this world just paled into comparison. He didn't want to settle for anything else. That is what God gives us when we come to faith in him. He gives us a deposit when we come to faith, and then it grows as we walk with Jesus. So we have to have union with Jesus. And even as we go on, I would say, like it's not just something that happens at the beginning, it's something we should cry out for throughout our Christian lives. Something we should say to God, you know, God, I'm following you, I'm walking with you, but God, please, I want a download of hope. I want a boost of hope. I want a vision of hope. I want you to to give me this gift so I can see this future that you have for me and for the world around me. So we need that gift and we need to walk with Christ. And as we live our lives in obedience to him, hope becomes more real. It becomes more clear. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Sometimes when I'm walking, uh, I follow an ordinance survey map. You get to the corner of a field and the the map shows a little green dotted line going off in one direction. And then there's a kind of wonky wooden post. You're not really sure which direction it's pointing in. And then you look on the ground for where other people have walked and there's just nothing there. You ever had that experience? Some of you. (laughs) So I've learned through experience. I look at my map. I'll follow the green dotted line. You know what happens? After about just sometimes 10 paces, suddenly you see the path again. And it's just 10 paces. You go, how did I miss it? How couldn't I see it from just over there? And suddenly you can see it because you're standing right over it. Hope is just like that. As we walk in obedience to Christ, sometimes we get to a point where we're like, really, is this the way? And we don't have that vision. We don't have that confidence. But as we take steps in faith, as we follow that dotted line, as we do what Jesus said, as we live as he lived, suddenly the path is right there before us. It's like, how did I miss it? It's so obvious. And so many times in our lives, as we, as we step out in obedience, suddenly the sense of what God says makes sense to us. That vision of the future becomes real to us. So we need to be one with Jesus. We need to walk with Jesus. It's Lent, and I think it's good to say something else about fasting. You know, just in terms of, in terms of understanding and, and getting hold of this hope. Because it's something we can cooperate with, that God gives us, but we have to cooperate with. And you know what fasting does is it highlights those things in our lives that take away from hope. A, a long-term fast, this is not just like going without food completely, but like a, a Lenten fast is where you just eat really boring food for 40 days. And you know what, you, as, what happens is you find as you're bored, you start to realize precisely how your life is before God. You start, to, you start to realize actually food can be this thing that is like a highlight in your life that you hop through, hop from, you know, and then you're, you're moving from one meal to the next. It's like a highlight in the day that distracts you from the fact that there's not really much else going on. So if your prayer life isn't great, it's okay because you've got a great breakfast coming up. <laughs> Well, it's funny, right? But actually, I, I'm really deadly serious. It's actually true. Like, you know, your, your morning's gone by and you've not really achieved anything. You've not prayed. You've not asked God for his guidance. You've not asked him, Lord, how can I fill this day with your love and goodness? How can, how can I do the impossible in my small patch of the world? You've not done those things. It's gone past and you forgot to do it. But it's okay because you've got a cracking lunch come up. You've got, you know, someone's made some sandwiches for you and, and then dinner. Wow. And other things too, you know, entertainment, television, <laughs> all the three main meals, <laughs> snacks in between, coffee, entertainment, shopping, all these things. There's nothing inherently wrong with them, but they're, they're powerful experiences that we really enjoy. And what they can do, they can detract from the fact that there isn't anything impossible going on in our lives. 
And we can just drift along from month to month, year to year, just basically kind of distracted with second best. And the devil's kind of winning that temptation battle with ever, almost without ever having to say a word. He's giving us a bird in our hand without ever even mentioning the other stuff. True, right? Yeah, I think it's true. And when we fast, we take the fight to the enemy and we say, you know, what, I'm going to clear away all the dis- potential distractions. They might not be distractions. It's okay. I'm going to clear away all the potential distractions so I can really assess where I am with you, Lord. How's my prayer life? How's my dependency on you? How full or empty is my life of impossible things? How necessary is hope for the lifestyle I'm living? Now, I want to commend to you, as Mark has already done today, the discipline of fasting in Lent and throughout the year. Just to have that time of resetting, to make sure you're not being controlled by these everyday temporal things that are good, but not what God has for you. The great thing is, as we walk with Christ, fasting or any other way, just in obedience, we, that hope that God has given in us grows. And our vision of the future gradually comes into line with Jesus' vision of the future. And that is a super cool thing. That is a wonderful thing. So you think about those things I mentioned earlier. Our vision of marriage becomes Jesus' vision of marriage. That is a most amazing thing. What God has joined together, no man can put asunder. A a vortex, an overflowing fountain of love and beauty in the world that pours forth God's goodness. That's That's Jesus' vision of marriage. That's why he spoke so strongly about it. Relationships. As we love recklessly, according to the world, foolishly, impossibly, as we love people that we're in fellowship with and we believe the best again and again and again, despite all those strong feelings we have, despite all the suspicions that arise in our hearts, as we love people like that, Amazing things happen. We experience the peace of the Holy Spirit. We experience unity and fellowship in the Holy Spirit. That is, it's impossible, but it's a taste of heaven. It's real. As we love the people around us, as broken relationships are, are around us, recklessly, we believe we actually experience what Jesus experienced. It's just love of our enemies is powerful and effective and changes the world and transforms lives and redeems people from hell. As we evangelize, against hope, as we share the gospel with the hopeless, those that, naturally speaking, we despair of, we go from the disciples' vision, which is, oh, who who then can be saved, to Jesus' vision, with God, nothing is impossible. As we turn our back on you only live once, and we keep pouring out our lives in sacrificial service, Our vision is transformed until we don't just trot out the line, it's more blessed to give than to receive, but we experience it as a truth, as Jesus experienced it. To walk in love rather than selfishness is life itself. In abandonment, we turn our back on despair, we turn our back on giving up on prayer or loving others or reading our Bibles or even on our faith itself. We, and we get Jesus' experience of abandonment, which is in the midst of that loneliness, when it seems that God is far away, we have a deep and profound confidence that this is just for a time. And all that we've lost, God will restore with interest. That God hasn't forsaken me, but one day will stand in his presence and enjoy pleasures at his right hand.
in attempting things for God, as we walk in this hope, as we exercise it, God changes our vision from, this is ridiculous and it's too much for me and there's no way God could ever do something like that for me, to realising that God will actually quite happily blow our minds through the things he wants to do through your life. He will bless people in ways that you thought were impossible. He will rescue people from hell that you thought were impossible. He will do things. He will create things. He will bless you and bless others through you in ways that you can't take credit for. You will enjoy being a part of. And most wonderfully, the vision he'll give us as we walk in hope is a vision of our own salvation. God replaces our own orphanhood with sonship. Our own deep and abiding suspicion, surely I'm not good enough. But even if you believe we're going to heaven, it lives in most of us that we don't really grasp the fullness of what God is going to do in us. He's going to replace that disbelief with his hope. You know, our disbelief of our sin and our character flaws and our silliness and our weaknesses and our constant stumblings and failings with his greatest vision of all. That vision that not only protected him against temptation, but led him to and sustained him upon the cross. As he hung naked and nailed and bleeding, pierced, this vision filled his heart and gave him hope. This is what he longed for and believed was possible as he hung there for you and for me, a dying This vision of the new Jerusalem, but not from far away, not a city seen from far away, but zoomed up close. The vision was of you. He imagined, he understood, he saw with the sight of God, more clearly than any man could see, the face, the soul of every individual believer that he died for. Saved. The joy set before him was you. but not as you are. Lifted out of sin. Rescued from hell. Resurrected from death. Glorious in body and mind and soul and spirit. Whole and perfect and peaceful and joyful and full of love. To know him and enjoy him forever. That is Jesus' vision of the future of you. One day you will be like him. That's the vision he wants to saturate your life with. That he wants to, that's the vision he wants to order your steps by. Hope lets us experience that reality now. Hope does not disappoint us. One day, when we see him, hope will not be necessary anymore. Because the future will be the present. God's vision of the future will be the present. And the only thing that will remain will be never-ending, never-diminishing, ever-increasing, unburdened and blissful and perfectly satisfying love. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.